0: The supergirl of the beneficial insect world, the lady beetle packs a surprising punch. With her familiar orange shell and seven black spots, she can leap tall field crops and consume up to 5,000 aphids in her lifetime. With their own taste for villainous crop munchers, several species of pest-fighting parasitoid wasps team up to take down sawfly larvae, orange blossom wheat midge, and cereal leaf beetles. The common ground beetle has an avenging appetite for many insect pests as well as weed seeds. It's clovering time. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Grains West podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Glovis. Grains West magazine is co published by Alberta Barley and the Alberta Wheat Commission, and it's our goal to connect farmers, food, and ideas. And as always, if you'd like to read our exclusive online-only stories or subscribe to our monthly e-newsletter, you can visit grainswest.com. Today's episode is a follow-up to the Spring 2021 edition of Grains West. The special insect issue of the magazine, it features a swarm of stories about insect heroes and villains. While not a lot of information is available yet in how various insects provide beneficial services to commodity crop farmers, this is changing. For the insect issue, writer Trevor Back examined beneficial insect research being done in the Canadian prairies and also spoke with farmers around the world who are putting insects to work in their fields. I'd like to introduce Ian Doig and Trevor Back, who will discuss the state of beneficial insect research and
1: deployment in farming. It has been generally known that certain insects do good work on behalf of farmers. They attack insect pests and eat weed seeds. But farming has yet to suss out the secret identities and the superpowers of beneficial insects. The Western Grain Research Foundation's Field Heroes campaign has been a major inspiration in making this happen. Canadian researchers are now working to catalog the insects that provide benefits. They're also calculating the economic value these insects can provide. And as we'll discuss later in the podcast, Farmers in several countries are using beneficial insects at field scale with encouraging results.
2: There has indeed been very little research done on the use of beneficial insects in agriculture. I talked to two prairie research scientists about the possibilities and projects involving beneficial insects. I also talked to an Australian farmer about his successful problem solving use of beneficials in his commodity crops. First, Haley Catton is an Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada Lethbridge Research Scientist whose specialty is crop entomology, the insect environment within farm fields. Her work focuses on minimizing the impact of insect pests as well as getting the best results from beneficial insects. The Western Grains Research Foundation Field Heroes Campaign was a source of inspiration for Haley Catton's work. As part of her work to determine what beneficials can potentially do for Western Canadian farmers, she is now working on a catalog of beneficials. Now, Haley, I know that you are, you're obviously doing a lot of work in this area, but I know one of the big projects you are undertaking is you're you're essentially creating a, a gigantic roadmap that will help inform other entomologists about future work that needs to be done. Tell producers absolutely. Tell producers about that work and kind of what that even looks like, and maybe even timelines, because it's very interesting work you're doing.
3: We think beneficial insects have huge value and potential on the prairies and in any farming system, um, but there's been almost no economic work on the prairies to try to assign value, like dollar value, to these beneficials. We know what some of the species are, but we don't really have a comprehensive list of what a farmer in Alberta say, could expect to be in their fields in terms of benefic- beneficial insects and when. So we're compiling a list of what we know about the beneficial insects that are in crop fields. Um, what we also, what we don't know and creating a research roadmap. So taking everything we know, finding out <laughs> where the gaps in research are to like as you mentioned, create a roadmap of what research is most needed next so that we can get closer to really maximizing the value of these insects that are just out there naturally just doing their normal lives, um, but that happen to benefit us. And and when I talk about beneficial insects, I'm talking mostly about predators. So I'm talking about insects uh, and other arthropods like spiders that are out in a crop field and they're eating pest insects. So they're hunting pest insects. So something like a spider, for example, will, will hunt pest insects and reduce the impact of those pests. But how much do they hunt? How much of an impact does that make on reducing uh, how much insecticide people need to use? We don't know those numbers yet, and that's what we want to work towards in the long term. We want to give farmers the tools and the information they can that they need to make the best decisions for how to manage insects on their farm.
2: And I'm curious about this whole thing. Obviously, beneficial insects have the potential to be a huge uh, benefit on any given uh, Western Canadian farm. I guess a question I have is: Has it has it never been in vogue to study beneficials, or it seems like you're doing a lot of the heavy lifting? And was work ever done? in previous decades? Or are are you picking up any unfinished work? It it seems like in some ways we're at square one when we talk about beneficial insects, but it's 2021 and we've had decades (laughs) and decades and decades of farming that's been happening in the prairies.
3: Excellent question. And what I can say is that entomologists have been working on this for decades, maybe even almost 100 years, have been noticing parasitoids, which are specific predators of insect pests, uh, they've been noting this for decades and decades, so I can't take credit for at all for um, developing this idea. But what is new about this project that I'm working on is compiling all the information that we know from a paper that was from 1930s or something like that, right? Like we don't have a, a syn- synthesis of the whole picture on the prairies. So there has been work done, and it's some of it is amazing. Very labor intensive detailed work. And now we need somebody to put it into context with the whole prairie agriculture or crop production system. And that's where I'm coming in. So I also do original research on beneficials like experiments uh, myself, but I'm definitely standing on the shoulders of giants uh, in terms of all the work that's been done over previous decades.
2: And so tell us what you hope to accomplish or you and other researchers you're partnering with, perhaps in the next two, three, even as far out as five years from now.
3: I know that research dollars are limited, right? There's many, many issues that need to be studied. So my perspective is that I and my colleagues think beneficial insects are very important. So if we want to study them, how is the best way to do it? What are the biggest questions that need to be answered or what are the biggest gaps in our knowledge? So that's why we're making this research roadmap so that we can get, we can provide funders and farmers with the best investment for their research dollars so that we're hoping to have that research roadmap done in the next two to three years. And then from there, you know, once that document gets circulated, funders and farmers can decide which parts of it they want to invest in the most so it's it's really a compilation it's like a big picture maybe you could call it like a, an overhead view of the whole picture of entomology in terms of beneficial insects so yeah once that document's out we will have openings or at least opportunities to uh, to really direct the research and the investment in the research going forward you know to get the farmers the answers that they need about beneficial insects
2: do you have any best guesses as to what types of projects might be coming out uh, following the development of that roadmap. I'm sure that there's more pressing issues than others in the prairies right now when we talk about beneficials and possibly even combating some of those negative insects that we
3: find in the fields. Well, we won't know until we're done, you know, the whole research roadmap, but I'm suspecting that like a, a good early piece of knowledge we can invest in is things like, Parasitism rates, or you know, how many, what, per, what proportion of a pest in a field is being hunted or killed by beneficial insects? Uh, for some beneficials, we know that, but other ones we don't. We just know that they're predators, but we don't know how many they're they're eating.
2: And I know one of the other pieces, sort of all within this, perhaps that you were working on is kind of a calendar, almost uh, related beneficials. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. I find that very interesting, just so people can understand. You know which bugs are out at which time what they're doing and that kind of thing talk to us a little bit about that.
3: So what we want to create is uh, I guess a timeline of what you could expect to be active and when and first we have to start with the pests right and for some crops we know what the spring pests are and the summer pests and the late summer pests right But we also need to know what the beneficials are um, or what beneficials are active when The reason for that is that we haven't talked about this yet, but when producers um, use insecticide, especially foliar sprays to control a pest, let's say aphids, for example, you can control an aphid population with a foliar spray, but the beneficial insects in that field will also get damaged or killed from that spraying action. And those beneficials are probably already in your field uh, regulating, say, your cutworm population, for example. So, we need to know, we need farmers to know um, what beneficials are active when so that they have a sense of what uh, they might accidentally be losing by using um, foliar sprays when they're not necessary. And I, I want to be really clear that uh, whether to spray or not is a producer's decision. And we absolutely support uh, when it's necessary, use it, you know. But what we are trying to promote is use, using economic thresholds for pest insects. In other words, determining when an insecticide is necessary. Use it then. Um, And if it's not necessary, then don't don't use it because you're going to be harming those beneficial insects in your field that are preventing other pest outbreaks.
2: Sometimes that might be a scary thought. The idea, you have to wait a little bit until X threshold might be reached. Uh, because yeah you only get one chance per crop per year right that that can be a little bit of a scary idea for some producers I would imagine
3: yeah and I totally empathize <laughs> with that and and you know we can never tell the future like perfectly in advance but what we want to relay um, to the people making those decisions is uh, that there is a downside to unnecessary insecticide use right it's not the be, it's not the best attitude to say, well, I'll spray because I have nothing to lose if I do spray. Well, you do have something to lose, and it's all those beneficials that are, are providing pest control in your field. So when we say that beneficial insects have value and potential, I don't really mean that that's something they're, they're going to have in the future. I mean, they're already doing it now, right? We just don't have it documented how much they're, they're doing. So it's kind of like a silent, free labor that they're, that they're producing in the fields.
2: I was going to say it comes at a pretty good price right now of $0 per acre.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, my colleague, Hector Carcamo at AAFC as well, he's called it um, the unpaid army, right? So they're just out there. They're doing their thing. They're providing pest control and you don't want to disrupt them unless there's a really good reason. And that reason could be pests that are above the economic threshold.
2: What are the biggest things you'd like farmers to know these days when we talk about beneficial insects?
3: Right. Well, I guess the first thing to know is that they're out there. Actually, most of the insect species in a farm field are not pests. So, if you're a producer and you see insects crawling around, say, on the soil surface in the spring, those could be beneficial ground beetles. So, those are good guys. You want to keep, you want to keep those. So, I guess we're trying to help people seed the insect populations a little bit differently you don't want a sterile field you don't want a field with no insects in it that that's trouble right because the insects that are out there are doing really important things for you like cycling nutrients eating things pooping you know so we need them out there you don't want a sterile field and a lot of those insect species are are doing good work out there so I guess that that's the message that I would convey is that It's absolutely very necessary to get to know which insects are pests and to scout for them.
2: Tyler Wist is also a field crop entomologist. He works for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada Saskatoon. He examines the effects of pest insects on crops and attempts to minimize those threats. Like Catton, he also determines how beneficial insects control such pests and looks for ways to help them do this potentially valuable work for farmers. So what are the typical beneficials that a farmer in western Canada either has has likely encountered or maybe they saw the effects of it because a lot of them are nocturnal?
4: So when I started out we we started looking at cereal aphids. So these are the English grain aphid and the bird cherry oat aphid and they're up on the heads of your wheat and your barley and your oats and so if you open those up and you take a look at at those heads and you find the aphids in there, you'll probably also find lady beetles crawling around looking for those aphids. So when there's enough aphids, the lady beetles will lay eggs and then you get their lady beetle offspring. So their larvae start crawling through the field and they're also voracious aphid predators. Uh, But those ones are a lot less known. So they're not a showy red. They're not, they're not too orange. They do have kind of spots on them, but they maybe look like little black alligators. And so it's uh, it been, been my mission, let's say, to help farmers understand that those little black alligator-looking things in their field are beneficial insects, and they're doing a job for them. And if they have them in their field, what they really should be looking for are aphids or some other small-bodied pest insect that they could be feeding on. So that's definitely one that a farmer would be would be able to see in their field. Um, Less showy, um, but no less lethal, are green lacewing larvae. And so I really like these ones. Um, But those ones are, they're like the the, uh, lady beetle larvae, kind of in how they look, but they've got really big mandibles that they will use to stab an aphid. And then they kind of suck it dry after they've injected their salivary enzyme. You liquefy the inside of the aphid. So their mode of feeding is a lot different. And they leave behind little shriveled aphid bodies, whereas the lady beetle eats the whole aphid down. So you talked about nocturnal beneficial insects. And there are some running around on the floor of your field. And those are the ground beetles. We've got a really good complement of ground beetles. And they are eating things like... uh, wheat midge cocoons that could be exposed on the surface of the field. Um, they're eating aphids that have been washed off by a rainstorm. Diamondback moths that have maybe dropped off of the canola leaves and down onto the ground. And, uh, you know, really just anything in the ground. So this is like a, like a silent unseen army that comes out at night and just runs through the field and eats whatever they can. Some of them even eat weed seeds we have a PhD student at the University of Saskatchewan and she's evaluating um, the effect of these ground beetles on weed seeds so whether they can bring down the weed bank or not. And so when we
2: talk about beneficial research in general uh, to you what is the most surprising thing because as I understand there's just not that much of a robust body of work in western Canada when
4: it comes to beneficial insect research? Well, the research itself is not the easiest thing to do. So you want to know if a beneficial insect is controlling a pest population in your field, you need to do a lot of different experiments. So you have to figure out how many frilates aphids, for instance, how many aphids is that lady beetle going to eat at each of its life stages? And then you need to take that information that you're, you're probably getting off of one plant or maybe out of a petri dish where you just keep feeding the beneficial insect to see how much they can actually feed on but that's kind of like you know getting up to the buffet where you don't actually have to go and search for your food so then you need to take that into account the search for the the insect so is that lady beetle actually going to eat say 90 aphids a day if it has to get up and fly around and go look for the aphids in the field so then you need to take that into account and then the movement of the the aphids not the aphids sorry the beneficial insects Um, and how many in a big field do you actually need to control those pest insects and so then you need time on your side so you need a lot of fields and you need You need uh, those populations of the pests to build up, and then you need the populations of the predator to build up, and you need to be there from the start to the finish and see if, you know, this level of beneficial insects actually brought down that level of uh, pest insect. So let's use aphids again. By the end of the summer, the uh, wheat already starts to senesce and then the aphids pick up and leave anyway and so when you need to take that factor into account was it just plants not being a poor a good host anymore and that's why the pest insect picked up and left so there's so many factors that you need to work into it to actually say yeah i think that a beneficial insect is doing a good job um, and in in a few cases i was able to say that
2: and so perhaps this is an obvious follow-up but why is it so difficult to really quantify the research regarding beneficials? Yeah, that
4: is very true. And, you know, farmers are always thinking about economics. Entomologists also need to think about economics. So is it economical to spray the field um, if need be? Is it economical to leave those lady beetles to do the job? Um, Or are you going to hit that level of pest pressure that's your yield has gone down so much that it's, uh, you know, it's not a good situation anymore.
2: Economic thresholds have been established for only a few agricultural pests, says Wist. He cites a parasitoid of the wheat midge that has been studied by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada researcher Owen ulfert Knowing this parasitoid has kept the level of wheat midge in a given field below the established threshold, the farmer benefits financially by not having to spray. Most farmers are likely aware of these benchmark thresholds, but WIST has worked on dynamic thresholds, which are now being used by Western Canadian farmers.
1: Let's discuss that term WIST uses, dynamic action threshold. What is that all about?
2: Conventional action thresholds establish the level of pest insect at which the farmer needs to take action for a particular crop to avoid yield loss. It doesn't take into account the lady beetles, green lacewings, or parasitoid wasps that attack those pests. The dynamic action threshold, as the name suggests, moves in accordance with the beneficial insect populations found in the field and the number of a given pest insects they eat every day. So this all sounds like complicated work. Is that that the case? For instance, Wist and his colleagues had to calculate the aphid-killing potential of a parasitic wasp found in Saskatchewan fields. Only the female of the species eats aphids. Additionally, they found a second wasp species, a hyperparasitoid, that attacks the first species, decreasing its number by 60%. All told, each beneficial wasp eats 12 aphids per day. Wist then used an app he created with the help of AAFC technicians to calculate dynamic thresholds in individual fields and has done field work to confirm its predictions. It was an idea borrowed from the Afit Advisor app developed at the University of Guelph for use with soybeans. What do producers need to know when it comes to dynamic action thresholds and when to take action
4: or perhaps when not to take action? What okay. big well, message you would have for Western Canadian growers? The big message is we don't have a lot of dynamic action thresholds right now. So you could say, all right, we've got diamondback moth in my canola field. What's the dynamic action threshold? And I just shrug my shoulders and go, I don't know. We have to do that work. So it's, uh, you need to get into the field. You need to figure out, first of all, what are the predators? What are the parasitoids? And then you have to track a lot of fields and you need to say, okay, so we had this many of these diamondback moth parasitoids and the population crashed. Excellent. And then you have to take out things like weather effects that might crash population or the senescence of the crop. So what I would say is more funding needed and more projects needed on uh, most of those dynamic action thresholds.
2: WIST suggests farmers can assist the beneficial insect work done by field crop entomologists. If you work with a keen agronomist, they can use sweep nets to collect data on insect numbers on far-flung farms that researchers cannot easily visit. Determining the number of aphids, lady beetles, and so on in a given field gives scientists much more data to work with. Another example, he has worked with farmers who have volunteered to put wheat midge pheromone traps in their fields to determine the number of male wheat midges when they emerge. This sort of assistance by farmers goes a long way in assembling the data needed to answer questions about beneficial insects.
1: The projects Catton and Wist are working on will help farmers determine if and how they can put beneficial insects to use in their operations. Farmers in a number of countries are now experimenting with integrated pest management programs that put beneficial insects to work in their fields. As part of my research, I spoke with farmers from around the world, including Brazil,
2: the United States, England, and Australia about their use of beneficial insects. One of those farmers is Andrew Watson, certainly someone we would call an early adopter. He farms in northern New South Wales in Australia. In a valley along the Namoy River, he grows a mix of irrigated and dryland crops that include cotton, corn, and sorghum during the summer, and durum wheat, canola, and chickpeas in the winter. So, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about beneficial insects and how it is that you came to be interested in these helpful bugs.
5: So, with my father and now myself have been growing cotton on this farm for sort of 40 or 50 years, and before the introduction of genetically modified cotton, uh, we were sort of on an upward trend of more and more insecticides to kill the pest insects, which would also then kill all any beneficial insects. And, and so, you know, one spray one chemical would kill one insect, but kill a friendly that would have normally controlled the next pest. So the cycle seemed to be getting worse. So we'd certainly attempted to move from that point into a more, uh, I guess, hopefully, help keeping your friendly insects alive. So that involved using softer, more expensive chemistry initially. But secondly, also to start taking account of the numbers of them and seeing actually if they're going to have an effect. So uh, trust the spiders, someone once said to me, Um, (laughs) which sounds great. But it it sort of led from that. And one of the evolutions that um, the first advent of genetically modified cotton brought to Australia was it controlled our major pest, which is the Heliothus caterpillar complex. And so then we were actually, we weren't spraying early season continuously to try and control that insect and thus it it actually gave us the opportunity to build up sort of lots, large amounts of beneficials because we weren't actually taking them out early season uh, and, and I guess from there our interest has sort of spread to well how do we get more of these uh, insects and where do they come from and, and uh, you know once we'd sort of resolve well if we stop killing them they'll help us. And so that sort of teed in really nicely with a lot of work we we're actually doing on riverbank regeneration and and uh, tree lines around the farm, sort of linking up remnant vegetation um, or or lumps of you know trees on hills and things. And some of the research that was coming from university students, a lot of PhD students have been on this farm, uh, was suggesting that uh, you know it was actually coming through those sort of wildlife or insect corridors. Um, So that's that's sort of been the evolution um, to sort of where we are today, which is just a little bit more than that. Watson contends with three
2: major cotton pests, including a sucking insect called the green mirad that eats young cotton plants. As the season goes on, the silver leaf whitefly becomes active and lays a honeydew sugar that fouls the cotton, making it difficult to process. A major late season pest, the mealybug, lays its own honeydew while sucking the plant dry. Mites can also be a problem in corn crops and can migrate from the corn to the cotton crop. Local beneficial insects include various lady beetles and spiders and species such as assassin bugs and damsel bugs. Watson also employs trichogramma and hyatti wasps which lay their eggs inside those of insect pest species.
1: Did Watson have much existing information to go on when he decided to launch his beneficial insect program? He says the use of beneficial insects
2: has been concentrated on fruit and vegetable farms, so the generation of data and tactics on the use of beneficials in field crops has been slow to come. Charging ahead on his own, Watson has been releasing beneficial species into his corn and cotton for a couple of years. He purchases his supply from insect providers located around the country. These include predatory mites that he releases upon corn with the use of drones. He works with Parabug, one of several drone-based applicators operating in Australia.
5: There's sort of a massive information to understand here is you know, firstly what insect predates on another one, um, at what levels, at numbers do you need to get them in the crop, um, the other thing is how to safely get them to the ground and will they survive a bit of a fall? So we, we've certainly been trying to learn a bit about that. Um, one, of the, one of the next steps, I guess, you know, the drone-based application is fine until you have a massive crop across Australia and everyone wants to do this. And, you know, we're, unless there's multiple, multiple, very expensive drones, it's, it'll be a step up. For that to happen, uh, to be all drone-based, so there's certainly some advances into releases of a golf ball-sized capsule from an airplane that has the insects in it, so they hit the ground in their little golf ball or space shuttle and um, crawl out the holes and and go to work. So. That that's got certainly got some application in the in the bigger bigger areas or the years when there's massive uh, massive crops go in and we just, the drone operators don't know the the actual resources, mm-hmm. but um, but no, we've been uh, very happy with the system of drone release. Uh, we can change the density depending on the so the density of application depending on which insect it is. If it's one that moves very well between the between the parts of the crop, we might have the. Uh, the width or the, or the swath that it releases are much wider uh, and then if it's another one that's uh, very you know, slow to move we might bring that right in um, so it's yeah, certainly a system that works um, and talk yeah. to
2: us about the process itself because I understand essentially the bugs are loaded into a clear cylindrical tube and that tube has some holes on it. Talk to us a little bit about that and just sort of paint a picture
5: the farmers who are listening? No, sure, so big drone, six six rotor drone. It has, well in this case, two of these cylinders. You, the cylinders just uh, are sitting horizontally. You you pull them off to load them. So uh, open one end, uh, load in the insects mixed in with say rice hulls, there's another product called vermiculin, but rice, just rice hulls from uh, a rice crop is is just as good a carrier. And you have sort of multiple holes around, the, around this cylinder. And so as the drone flies, it has a mechanism that rotates the cylinder sitting horizontally. And if, as it rotates around the insects and rice holes actually just fall out, fall out the holes. And so they uh, just have to calibrate the speed they're traveling and the rotation to get the amount of insect and carrier out uh, over the area they actually fly. And so there's ability to put two or three and there's ability to mix insects in those or if they're actually a, an antagonistic insect or insect uh, species to the two of them, you can put them in the, different, the two different uh, applicator tubes.
2: And tell me about the results because I understand that you had, for instance, put in uh, one, yeah. one batch of beneficial mites to attempt to control some other mites that were infesting in your corn talk to us about that and how the results went
5: sure so in corn uh, this year in australia in our particular region we had a very early very high pressure load of two spotted mite and they're uh, and at the levels they were getting at the infestation infestation levels we're talking about is you know up to 100 percent of the plants were infested with these things in a very early stage so we we were able to find some predatory mites uh, from Western Australia, as I said earlier, uh, persimilis, and um, and so they came across and they will predate on the two spotted mite. So we did, in conjunction with the we actually did some different rate trials. Um, And I guess our thinking was is to release them early into a food source and hopefully the numbers of the predatory mites will build up through the season and affect and effective control throughout the season. Rather than trying to kill them all at once with a massive amount of insects, we were hoping to uh, put them out early and let the population build. And that is actually what happened. We we had three different release rates of uh, 10,000 per hectare, uh, 50,000 and 70,000. And I think we had just at the end of the season, we had uh, no mites. We had small amount of leaf damage on the very first leaf. So that tells us that from early on, we actually got a pretty good control. (laughs) Now, anecdotally across the region, um, we were the only ones to do this. Everyone else sprayed early season at least once, if not twice. And I would say the cost factor would put us between those two. So it probably would have... if one spray might have been a little bit cheaper, two sprays are certainly more expensive than what we did. Um, and at the end of the season, we couldn't find any mites, no mite problem in the crop. Um, again, anecdotally, the others had mites in their crops, people who had sprayed. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, that's a great outcome. Um, similarly, the last two seasons, we actually think we've had some real benefits in cotton we're trying, we've, uh, we use a Hayati wasp to affect control of the silverleaf whitefly pest we have. Um, and so in the last two seasons, we've done two releases around about mid-season in our cotton. So again, giving the Hayati wasp population a time to grow in the crop. So first of all, they only target silverleaf whitefly, that's their only food source, so they'll die out. So we have to wait until there actually are silverleaf whitefly in the crop. And once we see that, we go into a process of of releasing these um, Hayati wasps. So it's a very, uh, very important... Microscopic. And microscopic. So, yeah, 250 acres, not a big area, 100 hectares. We did this year, we've been in drought over here, but, you know, the, the little tub would fit as small as my hand to do that whole area. Um, we where cotton is just about finished now, this year, and there's no sign of silver leaf whitefly. The, you know, The report every week is low to non-existent. So quite, quite happy with be, that outcome.
2: Absolutely. And most people will be curious because this all sounds very exciting, but you know, the one question that any farmer who's listening would have, which is, what does it cost?
5: Certainly, that's right. So, most applications with the drone application cost me less than application with an aeroplane, and less than application with a ground rig uh, sprayer. So, if we're talking versus spraying, the cost it varies from us depending on the insect, somewhere between twenty and forty dollars a hectare. So, I guess that uh, translates down to what fifteen bucks an acre uh, at most, probably somewhere near ten. So, it's the relative cost is actually not, it's pretty similar to a spray for my money and if we can get better results plus, plus I said that, that uh, flow on effect, if you start spraying you, you flare other problems. Whereas by doing this we're keeping all beneficial complex alive and so hopefully we, we, you know, we won't ever see mealybug again if, because we're, not, we're actually keeping all the um, predators which would normally keep them in control. So that's, I guess, that's the, the thing for me is we, you know, it's it's con- we're controlling the one insect which has proven a problem, but we're also keeping the other controllers in there for the uh, the rest of the pest species for us.
2: Talk to me about that. Obviously, you're keeping the the ecosystem relatively intact when you employ some of these strategies, such as the drone-based application. Any thoughts or comments you can offer on that, and just how with and and it's not that you don't spray or you're opposed to spraying; you still do, but obviously you're spraying at a lesser rate. So, can you talk about the the outcomes of that, sort of from that environmental perspective and the the native bug populations?
5: Yeah, so certainly we've we've had we've got about seventeen or eighteen years of data on our farm of weekly insect counts in our cotton, and and uh, and so we can actually look back at trends. We can look at trends over time, and we look at the trends through the season. Um, we do uh, we do just categorise it. It's you know, it's a big job doing that. We do categorise it as just predatory beetles, predatory bugs, and predatory spiders. So, um, but if I look at uh, and this year we uh, I was talking about that uh, mirrored green mirrored early season pest for us. We actually did spray insecticide to control that this season. We just had a quite a high level, and we couldn't we haven't established a predator which is effective against it yet. Um, but we were actually able to see the effect of those sprays on our predatory insects. and so we would use an expensive targeted spray that's really soft on beneficials. And I think the effect this year was a twenty percent drop off in the predatory bar, predatory beetle numbers, I think, for the, for the particular spray we used. So you know starting to gain some knowledge, it's all good and well for a, a chemical distributor to say, "Oh, it's a soft chemistry but we're starting to actually get some data here that shows us that, yes, it will have a 20, that that particular chemistry will have a 20% um, downgrade of your predatory bugs, as an example. Um, Some of the others actually have an effect on the spider population, but um, but we'd certainly know if we used a broad spectrum chemistry in there, which I guess we haven't done, (laughs) but I think you'd see the numbers drop away to zero on a lot of the um, beneficial insects if we were to go that way
2: offer to other farmers, whether they're in Australia or other parts of the world, who have considered beneficials or they're thinking about taking a bit of a longer look at this? What can you tell them from your perspective? Because you've been headlong into this now for quite some time, Andrew.
5: Well, I think uh, one of the really big canaries here is w- what's happening in Europe and I think also over in North America, which is the the looking at banning a particular insect uh, chemical, um, product groups. And so, you know, the big one we see in Europe is the neonicotinoid ban, which is playing havoc with their ability to actually uh, control flea beetle in, in uh, rapeseed or canola. Um, so we will have less chemical tools in the, in our toolbox going forward. Um, you know, there hasn't been a new mode of action in herbicide, just as a sort of a separate thing, but it's, it's a bit similar in the in the insecticide field for 30 years. So there's not a whole lot of advances coming, plus we're losing a lot of the old chemistry. So we actually need other ways. We will need other ways to control insects to be able to grow crops. And so for me, if we can find a a way that uh, is a net economic um, benefit as well uh, and that's exactly what we've been trying to prove that all of this stuff feels good and sounds good but it's, it has to make economic sense as well or we won't be here and for me it actually is starting to make a lot of economic sense.
2: It's very exciting when you put, you put a, you know, a theory into practice and you start to see the results so it sounds like very interesting things coming out of New South Wales these days.
5: Oh, well, this is, you know, we're certainly not the only one. I've got a, my agronomist, a private agronomist is very much leading, you know, leading the way in this field. Um, and he has many of his clients have taken up this. So I guess it's, we're a bit concerned. There's, we think there needs to be a lot more research um, into one, the, which which predators are going to eat which insects and, and at what capacity and, and what their population change is like, and two, what chemistries actually affect what beneficials? We certainly know what they kill, but we actually, if we, got, if we have to use them, we wanna know what, what is gonna hurt. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done on that in the research area, uh, which, you know, you can do it at, at a minor level on a farm, but it's really good to have the rigor of some scientific testing as well.
1: Globally, the potential upside for integrated pest management appears to be huge. We know commodity crop farmers will need new management tools as chemistries are eliminated. And these methods are economically promising. Is this your impression from uh, your research on the story? Input costs
2: continue to rise while prices do not always follow a similar linear trajectory. If they did, it would be no issue. However, since that's not always the case, farmers are increasingly thinking outside the box for ideas on how to run profitable farms while balancing their farm's overall health too. Even something as simple yet sophisticated as drone technology that will continue to improve and become cheaper, machines will be able to carry greater loads and weight and that could continue to open the door for innovation just like we are seeing in Australia with Watson's farm.
1: Ahead of the data required for wide scale implementation, Watson and other farmers Trevor spoke with are implementing the use of beneficial insects while well, research is yet underway. Researchers on the Canadian prairies, such as Catton and Wist, are on the case. Catten and Wist and others hope to give farmers the information they need to determine when and how to deploy the pest pummeling muscle of insect superheroes. That remains somewhat of a barrier right now for greater implementation,
2: perhaps due to the lack of hard and fast quantifiable data. However, just because something is anecdotal doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means it hasn't been quantified on a larger scale again watson and others are proof of that part of this issue is funding which unfortunately can become political as governments are the ones often sponsoring information at such a level consistent research dollars going into these projects for the long term appears to be one of the true ways to bring this into the common knowledge base for canadian farmers Without it, there will likely be siloed on-farm research happening in many places, but it may lack unity with knowledge and sharing that knowledge. However, as we've heard with field heroes and other unique cases from around the world, the interest in beneficial insects and a more holistic approach to soil health increases, these minute bugs will continue to gain positive attention. And that's it for
0: another edition of the Grains West podcast. Read the digital edition of the magazine at grainswest.com, where you'll also find regular online-only stories. Till next time.